ignore these words, uh, but actually let your hearts be open towards him uh, today and especially every day in between as well. Because the same heart that met with sinners here on earth now intercedes for us in heaven. And it's the same heart that cares for us now. And so today we're going to see his heavenly heart revealed to us throughout our passage in John 14 as Jesus comforts his disciples. So you can look on screen uh, to see John 14 verses 1 to 7. Otherwise, you can follow along with your Bibles uh, in your phones or in your paper Bibles. So John 14, verses 1 to 7, and I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Okay, follow along with me. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, so that where I am, you may be also. You know the way to where I'm going. Lord, Thomas said, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Let's pray. Father, we desperately want to believe the words of your son Jesus that are staring us in the face this morning, that as we know him, we also know you. From now on, we want to say that we know you, that we have seen you, because we know and see Jesus. So whatever is in our hearts, whatever troubles us this morning, would you help us to trust in you, to believe, Lord, that you are good, to believe, Lord, that you do care for us, that nothing in this life is too big or too small. You want to hear everything. You know the greatest and the least of our concerns, and all of these things occupy your mind as well. So would you help us, Lord, to cast all of our worries, all of our cares and anxieties upon you, knowing, Lord, that you care for us, that you have the best in mind for us, even better than what we can imagine or dream up for ourselves. And when we look at our lives, we don't know which way we're headed a lot of the time. We don't know where we'll be a year, five years, 10 years from now, but you do. And you hold the world in place. And indeed, you hold our lives in your hands and your love is for us. And so we wanna know your love, we wanna receive your love, and we want this world to know your love. So would you help us now? Would you help us this morning to see this love anew once again? Help us, Lord, to seek you, to glorify you through this word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, Bora and I, uh, we've been married for eight, going on nine, ten years now. I want to say ten years. I keep getting this number wrong. I'm sorry. Uh, one of the biggest worries for me as I prepared to marry Bora uh, all those years ago, ten years ago, was whether or not we'd have a place to live once we got married. You know, when we were engaged, 
I was still in seminary at the time, and so I was still uh, attending you know, graduate college, studying. I was poor. Uh, I only had a part-time job as a youth pastor in a different country as well. So I was in Korea at the time. I'd gotten rid of everything uh, that was precious to me in life in order to move over and study. And as mentioned last week, I was living with my grandma, you know, my sweet grandma who cleaned up after me and you know, did everything. I didn't really want to invite Bora to share this tiny little room that I was living in, though, where I was living in at my grandma's. You know, I could literally stand on one side and jump to the other side, and it was, that was it. You know, that, that was a whole room. And so I really wanted us to have our own place, you know, as you do once you get married. So I remember I asked the pastor who was discipling me to pray for me because You know, at the time in Korea, I was looking into the different apartments that were available. I tried to look into the cheapest places possible. And then I felt really bad that I was going to you know, marry this woman and invite her to the cheapest places possible where I didn't really want to live. I started looking into monthly rent costs that were you know, a little bit too high in order to make ends meet. And so I heard about this other way of uh, living in different places. It was called a key money deposit where basically you give... 50 to 80% of the market value of this place in one lump sum, and then they don't charge you for the rest of the time that you're living there. They just make money off the interest. That was definitely too high for me. Like if monthly rent was too high, you can imagine, this was you know, impossible. And so things felt very impossible. But the biggest worry was not for myself. You know, it was not about how I was going to look to this woman, because I imagined you know, she's stuck with me anyway. She's married. You know? So what's she going to do, right? It was for Bora's security and for her stability as well. And I worried about how she would feel. I worried about preparing this place for her to live. If only I could say these words of Jesus' to myself back then. Don't let your heart be troubled. Now I wonder how I would have responded. Now read with me verses 1 to 4. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, so that where I am, you may be also. You know the way to where I'm going. Don't let your heart be troubled. Why is it that Jesus is saying this to his disciples? What is troubling their hearts at this point? John 14 You know, this passage we're in, it follows from last week. We looked at uh, where Jesus had shared the final meal with his disciples before he goes to be crucified. He's just washed their feet and talked about a bunch of things, and they're troubled. Not for the same reasons that Jesus might be troubled, since he's going to be going to the cross. He knows these things as a son of God. He knows the way that he's headed. He's going to face physical agony. He knows He knows that he's going to face emotional and mental torment. And he has unparalleled shame and death awaiting him. No, the disciples are troubled because all of this is starting to feel a little, a little funny, a little bit like goodbye. Like, why is he talking in this way? Why is he doing this stuff that we never imagined that he would do? It feels like if someone says, hey, we need to talk. Jesus has washed their feet. He's talked about betrayal. 
He's talked about being with them a little while longer. This is the like, scariest thing, you know, if you're listening, right? And he tells them, from now on, love one another. It's like he's giving final instructions. A long time ago, I was sitting in a church service, and the pastor was preaching as he usually did, you know, very good preacher. He was going through, and then there was suddenly a very, very long pause. Like, he was very effective as a public speaker, and so he knew how to pause, you know, effectively, like you learn in public speaking. But this was much longer and much more uncomfortable than I was used to. And you know, like, when you're kind of half in and out of the service, hopefully you don't know this here, but let's just pretend that that's not what we're talking about. But after a while, after this very, very long pause, he just said, I was doing so well. <laughs> What's this man talking about? Is he praising himself for his preaching? What is, what's he saying? But as he continued on with encouraging us to carry out all of the things that he's been teaching us, to love one another, and then I saw a few of my friends around me start to cry, and something was clicking in my head. I started feeling really troubled. Like, I think he's saying goodbye. I think he's saying this might be the last time you see me. You know, Jesus' disciples, they're confused about what's happening. They've been listening to Jesus all this time. They're not sure what to make of everything he's saying. They're starting to feel a little bit threatened by everything that he has to say because he keeps alluding to himself leaving. Imagine I kept saying every sermon, new life, I'm here with you a little while longer. And then you're going to look for me, but you can't follow me where I'm going. It's probably inappropriate to joke about. Um, remember, they thought the Messiah would come. They each had ideas about what the world would look like. Like this man was supposed to come. This man of God was supposed to come and change things for them in their minds. The current government would be thrown out. They'd be put into positions of power, they thought. None of them had any plans that included Jesus' imminent departure. It didn't make sense to them. And so when he starts talking like this, they're not happy. They don't like it. Jesus, he is leaving his disciples, but only for a time. He's not leaving for no reason, though. He's going, he says, to prepare a place for them. And this is what he tells them. When he says this, when he takes time to care for them about what's on their hearts, what's troubling them, there's a bigger concern occupying Jesus' mind at this point than the crucifixion and the death that's awaiting him. He's mindful of his disciples and of all of us as well. He thinks about these things before he thinks about himself. If I knew I was on my way to be crucified, I think I'd let the whole world know. And this is the kind of person that I am. You know, I want everyone to console me. Like, I'm this way with chores. I want everyone to know when I'm doing chores, even, in the house. I'm like a baby when it comes to pain. Like, have you ever seen a baby? They, like, hurt themselves a little bit. It doesn't hurt that much, but they look around to see if anyone's looking. And then they cry. And then if no one's looking, they stop crying. And they come closer, and they start crying again. I'm like that, though. Like, I'm like my own baby. 
He comforts his disciples by promising to prepare a place for them in his father's house. Not only does he promise to prepare a place, though, he promises that he's going to come again in order to take them to himself so that they can be together. In my mind, as I read this, it seems like this will be the perfect time for someone to comfort Jesus. Like, do you ever, you know, wish this? Do you ever want to be something to God? Like, you want to, something in your mind tells you, I got to pay God back for everything that he's done for me. You know you can't ever get there, but you kind of want to try. He's clearly quite troubled at this point. You know, he's literally told them, my soul is troubled. Who says this? Unless they're really troubled. He's talked about how he will be betrayed before long. But Jesus is still the one who gives them the words of life. He's still the one who comforts them. He's still the one who gives the disciples clear instructions, even knowing that they're going to break under the stress, under the emotional turmoil, the anxiety in their hearts, and they're going to fail him. But he's still the one that gives them these instructions. If you were here with us last week, we concluded that we humans, it's hard to get a clear picture of our character just from one instance or one example of our lives. Our personality, our love, you know, the discrete stories and instances in our lives, they don't tell the clear picture, they don't tell the whole picture. But with Jesus, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and so with Jesus you can. With everything that we read about Jesus, we see a clear picture of his love. And if that's the case, then this comfort that he gives to his disciples at this time, the time when it seems that he should be the one to receive some sort of comfort, this is the comfort that we also can come to expect from Jesus. We also can receive the same comfort from Jesus. So what is it that we're troubled by? What are the things that are going on in our lives that we become troubled by? At different times in my life, I think back, I've been troubled and felt overwhelmed like these disciples about a whole bunch of different things. They range from relationship issues, to career problems, money problems, more relationship issues. It was mostly just relationship issues a lot of the time, unfortunately. So many things in our lives that either work out or don't given the time that's necessary. Everything passes, but the only constant is, Jesus still comforts me. He's the only constant. In all the years of being a Christian, of even before I was a Christian, he's the only constant. So what are you troubled by? Because Jesus' promises are still for you today. Jesus says to his disciples in this passage, believe in God, believe in Jesus. Trust him. Now the story at the beginning, uh, I know I often tell stories and, and you know, sometimes people tell me, I don't really understand how this connects. Sometimes I don't, you know, but this time, The story I told about wanting to prepare a place for Bora and me, like, it's not a far stretch to see what's happening here. For me to live with Bora in this place after the wedding day, 
it's not far apart from what we're reading in this passage. Because we ended up with a place to live eventually. You know, Grandma came to the rescue once again. <laughs> this uh, sermon series, hopefully, uh, doesn't become too grandma heavy. Um, as a husband to be, preparing a place to live is something that's kind of expected. It makes sense. And you don't feel very good as a man if, you don't, if you're not able. You know, sometimes we put our worth in these things. There was a similar idea at the time when Jesus is comforting his disciples. A newly married couple oftentimes would have their room newly prepared in the father of the groom's house. You know, whether or not it was just being refurnished or whether it was a new addition to the home, whatever it was, once everything had been prepared, the groom would come again to take the bride to where they're going to live together for the rest of their lives. Until that time, they're separated because he's busy preparing this place to live. Jesus makes it clear to us throughout the Gospels, though, that he is the groom. He's the groom that we're talking about here, and the church, all of us, God's people, together are the bride. John 3, 29 reads, he who has the bride is the groom. This is John the Baptist talking about Jesus. In Mark 2, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. People came and asked him, why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, the wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them. He's talking about himself. As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. What greater commitment do we have in this life than marriage? Like, what are the things in our lives? Do you count your work contract as greater than marriage? Do you count your friendships as greater than marriage? Because as nice of a, a thought as that is, I don't know. But using the same idea, Jesus is a groom to God's people, meaning that we should love him. We should seek him in no other. We celebrate and trust in God alone, not in all of the idols and the things that we make our lives about. And yet Jesus, he's the one that's making this analogy. He's the one that's drawing this comparison, and he's the one who makes a commitment towards us. And so God's love comes to us in Jesus Christ himself. Love to the end, love that will go to us, whatever the cost, so that we can be one with God. What greater commitment than marriage? Jesus knew what he was implying. Marriage at this time was a covenant. It's an agreement between not just two parties, but two families to come together. So that families will be united, and their relatives, no matter how distant they were, they took responsibility over one another. They would accept responsibility. We saw this in our Ruth series as well. This gets extended to us. What I'm saying here, the point is, this gets extended to us by God, the Father of Jesus Christ, because of the love that Jesus has for us, his people. This commitment that he makes as the groom to us, as the bride of Christ, it extends God's promise of responsibility over us. 
When we talk about adoption into God's family because of who Jesus is and what he did for us, this is a big part of it all. We truly become members of the family through the covenant, united with God through Jesus. He goes away to prepare a place for the disciples and for us. The groom is physically away preparing, and yet spiritually he's always with us. Every step of the way throughout our lifetimes, he's always with us as we await the day of his physical return. Now the words he speaks gives us comfort while we await his return. Don't let your heart be troubled. Once again, believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? These words would be meaningless, though, without his character. All of us, at some point in our lives, we've heard words that were empty because we knew the person who was telling us these words. We knew from their character. We knew from their previous behavior. They're not trustworthy words. But we see evidence of God's character, of Jesus' character. Last week, every week before that, we see it all throughout the Bible. But this comfort that we receive, it would also be meaningless unless it pointed forward to the future day. Otherwise, what is it that we're putting hope in? What is it that we're even talking about? The comfort we receive when we go to him, this is what's awaiting us. And Jesus has made this beautiful promise to us. Like a groom, he'll come again because he's gone to prepare a place for us. And the same heart that met with sinners here on earth now intercedes for us in heaven. All right, we might have some questions about what Jesus is talking about here. When he talks about his father's house, the many rooms, I know that you know, whenever I read this passage before, this passage always made me wonder, made me want to know just what he was talking about. What's it going to look like? You know, is this a literal house that we're supposed to look forward to? Is that what heaven looks like? This is the way that I would think. The simplest answer is basically the father's house is just referring to where God lives. This is the simplest way that we can possibly describe it. There are many places for us to dwell there as well. This is the promise that he's making to us. There's more than enough room for all of us. Have you ever been to a country where there's not a lot of room? In Australia, we got, I think, plenty of room. But if you've ever been to somewhere like, let's say, Korea, it feels like there's not enough room. Everyone's bumping into each other. People seem angrier. And so this is a big concern to us. There needs to be enough room for all of us to dwell. But how do we get there? How do we go where Jesus has prepared a place for us? He's gone to make preparation. He's gone through the cross and the resurrection. This is the way that he's talking about. But what is the way that we're going? You know the way to where I'm going. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him, and I've seen him. Jesus tells his disciples, just straight up, that they know the way to where he's going. And Thomas asks this question about, you know, it shows to a degree that he has no earthly idea what he's talking about. What do you mean we know the way? We don't even know where it is that you're going. How can we know the way? 
But this isn't the point that Jesus is making. Like when we look at the way, this is the way that we think. We think of Google Maps, we think of the routes that we take, but this isn't what this is talking about when we talk about faith. Jesus is saying that because they know him, his identity, who he is, they do know the way to the Father's house. That's the key. It's not the route that you take, it's the person you follow. Do you know Jesus? Because then the comfort is, you do know the way to the Father. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, he says. He's the way to God. He's the way because he is the truth of God. He's the clearest and the most open revealing of who God is to us, to the world, saying and doing only what the Father does. And Jesus is the life of God as well because he is the resurrection and the life and he has all of the words of eternal life. Because he's a truth and the life, he can be the only way for us to walk, to come to the Father. In fact, he doesn't just show us the way to follow, as though we can walk the same path, but he is the way. Thomas Akempis, he's this Christian priest, He has this meditation on this passage from the imitation of Christ, uh, from Jesus' point of view. You can follow it along on screen. Follow me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. I am the way which you must follow, the truth which you must believe, the life for which you must hope. I am the inviolable way, the infallible truth, the unending life. I am the straightest way, the supreme truth, life true, life blessed, life uncreated. If you abide in my way, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free and you shall attain life everlasting. Do you feel distant from God? Do you struggle inwardly with your faith? Do you find yourself overwhelmed and troubled by the anxieties of this world? But you know Jesus. Believe in him, because when you believe in him, you believe in God. Believe in his promise towards you, because his heart burns for you today He's not going to leave you to be alone forever, but he'll come to you. Why don't I pray for you? Father, we have a great deal and a great many fears in our life. There are things that weigh our hearts down. And they start with ourselves, the way that we look at ourselves, the way that we fit into this world, what we're going to do in this life. And they extend from there. What if people knew the real me? 
if they only like me? Because they don't know me. What if they did know the real me and it caused them to hate me? And yet you, Father, you gave your son Jesus. He is, in his very essence, God. He knows us. By your word, by every word that proceeds from your mouth, we came to be, knit together in our mother's wombs. You know the way that we're headed. You know when we stand up, when we lie down. You know when we wander far away from you. And you love us. You know us even better than we know ourselves. better than our significant others know us and you love us to the degree that you would give the most precious part of yourself would you help us to believe this would you help us Lord to take Jesus' words given to his disciples here on earth all the way to our hearts knowing that right now his heavenly heart burns for us His desire, his yearning is to come to us and to take us to be with you forever. We thank you, Lord, that in your house there are many rooms. And in fact, you've prepared a place for us, for me, individually, that I can be with you. Help us, Lord, to take this comfort to heart. Help us, Lord, by warming our hearts to your Son, Jesus, so that boldly we can approach your throne and make all of our concerns known to you. Would you help us to receive your love so that we can love you too? It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.